0: Tonight I want to talk about the happiness of the path, a short excerpt from uh, Dhammapada. By your own efforts, waken yourself, watch yourself, and live joyfully. Follow the truth of the way, reflect upon it. Make it your own. Live it, and it will always sustain you. And from another line in the same Dhammapada, know the sweet joy of living in the way. Sometimes that we're really on a path of happiness gets a little lost. (laughs) We forget. (laughs) <laughs> Who are you laughing at? <laughs> and I know um, that the last week or so of a long retreat can at times be quite difficult. And I know this from talking to all of you all the last couple of days. Um, and for different reasons. I'm just putting this out. Because because I just want you all to know it's normal if you're feeling sometimes when it seems more difficult than it has been. Sometimes it seems difficult because actually things are going really well and we like it and it's tranquil and peaceful and there's so much insight and the thought comes, how can I hold on to this when I leave and I get busy? And sometimes it's just the reverse that we begin to see how strongly our old familiar conditionings and patterns can come popping up at the drop of a hat, so to speak. And we can feel rather chagrined at times. Well, what was the point of all of (laughs) this? Here I am, just the same me. And in fact, we can get quite, (laughs) quite wrapped up in that. It can seem rather discouraging. Or a third possibility is we're coming up against some last view we were holding of what freedom really should look like and what should have happened by now. And it didn't, obviously, whatever it should have been. And if there's still some holding to that view, for all of these reasons, it can seem a bit bumpier a bit more difficult at times in this last week. Again, none of this stuff happening needs to be a problem, none of it's a mistake. Of course the same conditionings arise. If you keep paying attention you'll see that there is actually the potential for meeting them with a lot more wisdom, a lot more spaciousness. You just don't remember, really, what it was like the first week of the retreat. (laughs) You won't remember that till your next retreat, the first week, and then you'll go, oh, yeah. So even though it might feel the same, it's very different. And I'm just bringing that up because sometimes in this, we begin to engender a sense of struggle. Remember, if anything arising is a problem, it's not the thing in itself. It's because somehow we think it should be different. Just take the conflict not as a sign that something's wrong, but as a signal to look. Where's the clinging in this moment? There's a Simeon, the new theologian, said once that the more a person enters the light of understanding... The more she or he is aware of her own ignorance. Think about that. It's true and it's not a bad sign. So when we're in the phase which can last a long time in our practice, where we're seeing, we're feeling, for this is an example, the painful nature of clinging, the completely ephemeral nature of pleasant feeling, and it feels like I really know. Clinging is bondage. The heart of non-clinging is freedom. There's nothing to cling at. And we turn around in a moment of awareness, and just some pleasant thing arises, and we're gone out of our walking path and out the door, and we don't even know how we got there. Whoa. Whoa. How did that happen? I'm so clear <laughs> that clinging is bondage and there's nothing worth clinging to. Why am I gone so quickly? We can get wrapped up in discouragement at that if we don't see that that's just another identification. We can look at it a different way, that the moment, we, okay, the craving came up, it's strong we learn to respect, a healthy respect, for the power of habit and conditioning has really, it really eases our way in this life. And you can also see that as strong as that craving came up and drove us, just as quickly, the awareness was there and cut through the whole dynamic again. Just like craving can come and drive us, awareness, connectedness, Resting at home in the nature of mind can also be there just like that. And at times we have a choice which way to look at our practice, like the glass is half empty or half full. So in this I want to just remind us, notice how easily, how quickly, how immediately wakefulness is again present. And that we're seeing the power of the conditioning is the beginning or the middle of our being more free from it. It's not that we're worse than ever. (laughs) So this is just the preamble. (laughs) And so what I want to talk about is really our path, the path that the Buddha has given to us as teachings, is a path of happiness, and we can forget that the path he has showed us that we walk on is much more vast than a meditation retreat. As vast as our meditation practice is, as vast as the Brahma Viharas are, and all the ways that we can learn to be present with mindfulness, as vast as all this is, a retreat is only part of our path. And when the Buddha would give his teachings. He really just started with the meditation practice. He always talked about three aspects of our path, dana, sila, bhavana. Dana being generosity, sila our ethical or conscious conduct, and bhavana um, usually translated as mental development. You could say our, our formal meditation practices come under bhavana. I'd like to talk a bit tonight about the first two aspects of this path because I think sometimes we, they're important, we go, yeah, yeah, they're important so that we can have a little peace, so that we can meditate. But seeing that Donna and Sila are in themselves, they're their paths, ways of living that bring deep peace and happiness. And also, each of these, in my, this is my opinion now, are practices of liberation, of freedom, of actualizing the heart and mind of non-clinging, of realizing through speech and action the wisdom of compassion. So the Buddha has said over and over that there's no higher happiness than peace. the peace of a heart of non-clinging, the peace of resting in the clear, vivid wakefulness that is our birthright. That's the peace of, you could call it emptiness, it's also the happiness of metta, the happiness of compassion, two sides of the same coin. And everything the Buddha taught if we really read or listen to his words, it seems like, okay, this is a generalization, but it seems like he really wasn't into fluff. You know what I mean? He said, like he said over and over, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. The sure heart's release. If you think of that and then see how much he emphasized the teachings of Dana and Sila and realize that's what I mean by, it's not that he said, okay, I'll teach the lay people Dana and Sila because that's the best they can do and save the good stuff for the monks. Sometimes it might feel like that actually And when I was in Thailand, which it's it's interesting to be in Thailand or Burma or a country where Buddhism is the main cultural context because you can get a feeling both for the depth of understanding of how it's practiced but also, as with any um, formal religion, I shouldn't say any, but from what I've seen of the formal religions in this country, um, especially Christianity and Judaism, similar to Buddhism in Thailand, where it is met and understood on all different layers of wisdom. So on the deepest layers, of course, the practice of freedom, but on the layers of just taking it in as culture, a lot of the Thai people are really very wonderful in working with Donna and Sila, but I would get the sense when I was there as a nun, even speaking to people, that the dana was really quite inspiring, and I'll talk about it in a minute, but it didn't quite have the depth. It was sort of, the best I can do is be generous. You do the meditation for me. I mean, people would say that. So I think that is really downplaying the depth of the practice of dana and sila, because I think if we look at them deeply, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, really inquire into these two aspects of the Buddha's teaching, we can see that besides being a way of living happily in the world with ourselves and one another, they are also moment-to-moment actualizations of a heart and mind of non-clinging. Living happily, experience of of joy, gladdening the heart, I don't mean the specific mental factor of rapture, but a more broad feeling of gladdening the heart, happiness, is actually very important in our practice on our path of awakening. We talked a lot about the dependent arising, you know, beginning with ignorance and going through all the cycles and ending with suffering. And there's another, maybe some people have mentioned it in the talks, called the transcendental dependent arising that begins with suffering and then goes through to awakening and has different steps. So suffering giving rise to faith and faith giving rise to this joy, this gladdening of the heart. And this is a supportive conditioning for awakening. So we've gone on a lot about how suffering is a supportive conditioning for awakening. But it is important because it brings faith, because it brings gladdening of the heart, which then leads on to tranquility, and then happiness, a more kind of happiness, a kind of a lightness, which then leads to concentration, knowledge and vision of things as they are. I'm not going to go through... We're we'll to talk about all of them, disenchantment, dispassion, emancipation. But the point I'm trying to make is that living in a way relating to ourselves and one another in a way that brings happiness is not just about holding on to pleasant feeling. This gladdening of the heart sets the conditions for awakening. So the practice of Dana, of generosity. The Buddha emphasized this very strongly. It was usually one of the first things he taught, especially to lay people. And I think for me it has taken it continues to take a lot of very deep inquiring into it and paying attention to the effect of generosity in my heart and mind to begin i think i'm only just beginning to appreciate the power of generosity as a practice of liberation and on the way it brings so much happiness so much joy into our lives in fact when i uh, when i reflect on generosity and on how the Buddha's, in the Buddha's teachings, it really seems like nothing he taught was extra, was extraneous. I have a huge amount of respect, actually, for how he set up his sasana, how he set up the way that the nuns and monks and lay people related to each other because it was totally based in generosity. From Of course, it's clear for the nuns and monks they were completely dependent on the generosity of lay people for food, for their requisites, for any kind of place to stay. And a lot of the strict rules that were laid down would, would make sure that this sense of connection to the lay people through generosity couldn't be broken. I mean, just a simple example of, you can't keep food overnight. So you get enough food for that meal, that one meal for that day, And if there's anything extra, you give it away. There's no holding on. So that each new day is another day where the different um, groups of people meet each other through generosity. And in the monasteries, it's really neat to see, actually being a nun in Thailand in the monasteries I stayed at, the monks would go out on alms round, but the nuns didn't so much. And the one place I know where a nun did go, she didn't get so much. The nuns would get these huge amounts. I mean, the monks would. And the nuns not so much because the lay people weren't really used to nuns coming around. So the monks would get, and the one place I stayed in, Bangkok, was a very wealthy, a lot, huge amounts. I mean, it was really unbelievable on these Sundays, which are were sort of like a, a church day here on the Sundays, rather than going on Bindabat, the monks would all sit on a, on a curved stone wall, and lay people would all come, sort of like going to church, bring food to the monks, have a talk from the Ajahn, eat all the leftovers, have a big picnic together, sort of like a social, really very nice. Well, the monks would be sitting there, and part of the dhana is also receiving, so they don't say, no, I don't want that, you know, take it back. And by the end of all the lay people bringing their food, these guys would have a pile of of little plastic bags of curries in front of them. I mean, I'm not kidding. It would be like this high. (laughs) Huge, huge amounts of food. Well, that food would feed everybody in the Watt. So after they took what they wanted, they sent it all back to the middle, and I was the only nun there, so it would go to me and then to all the young boys, the temple boys, all the lay people who were there, then any visitors, and after that we'd pass it on to all the dogs and the cats and the chickens, Mm -hmm. and nothing goes to waste. It's really quite a nice system. And on the other aspect of it, the lay people receive the generosity of the monks and the nuns, because it's so clear, the Buddha from the very beginning, as soon as any of the nuns and monks had reached levels of understanding, he immediately sent them out to go teach. Go share this with all beings. That's the point of this. So it's this way he set up the sasana in this symbiotic relationship based on generosity of heart. And it's really giving everybody it's not saying you, know, you have to be generous, you have to be nice. It's giving people every day the opportunity to practice through action the heart and mind of non-clinging. Because that's what generosity really is. It's, it's both aspects, the emptiness of not holding on and the fullness of metta, the generosity of heart, that freely gives whatever one has, whatever is needed. One of the things I really learned about generosity from my time in Thailand was the power of joy that living and acting from this deep commitment to generosity brought to people there. At one of the temples I stayed at, a small one way out in the woods. All the temples, of course, are completely supported by the generosity of lay people. This one temple I stayed at, There were the, the number of monks and nuns fluctuates all the time because the way these temples operate is also on generosity. You don't call up and make a reservation and they say, let me see if I have room on this day. People just show up. And when you show up, they find somewhere to put you. And it's not only like, oh here's another one, where are we gonna put her? You know, it's this happiness, welcoming somebody. So this place I was staying, Tom Tong, on the nuns' side, it was back in the woods, the nuns on one side of a river and the monks on the other. And there were just, I think there were only five or six little kutis, little huts for the nuns. And this was the practice area, the silent area. So when I showed up, a foreigner, you know, they they really go out of their way to be kind, and they gave me a little private hut. And that was fine for some time. There were just as many of us as there were huts. And then one day, maybe five or ten nuns showed up. And so, without a murmur, the first woman to give up her hut was the head nun, a young woman who was very um, committed to her practice, very inspiring, And as she was the only person there who spoke English, I actually got to know her some. And and instead of saying, oh, well, since I guess I'm in charge, I have to give it up, she was so happy. So she'd have nuns come and stay in her huts. All the other nuns doubled up, tripled up, quadrupled up in these tiny little cottages. But me, of course, they never even thought about it because I was the foreigner. I was the guest. I should be treated special. So I I always had a hut by myself. But it wasn't, it wasn't just the ease, it was the joy that would come from this, this not even thinking about the quality of giving. And I reflected at the time both on how constricted I felt. Gee, I hope they don't put somebody in with me. That was really my thought. I wasn't, oh, I wish I too could be generous. The feeling of constriction I felt and the happiness I could see in the other nuns. And I thought back to the times I was on staff here, and when the place is really full and overflowing, we didn't have like a stampede of who's going to give up their rooms so more yogis can come and sit. And I'm not saying we should, but I just really did contrast the difference in attitude, and I felt, you know, who's happier? Who's more at ease here? Who's actually learning to live from compassion and non-clinging through this generosity? And everywhere I went in Thailand, there were just innumerable examples of women. I had to do some, stay in the city for a while in, in uh, Chiang Mai, going to physical therapy every day. And uh, a young woman, a nurse, took me into her home. It wasn't like, you know, begged me to come, would have been insulted if I didn't, and insisted on getting up every morning at four to make me breakfast. I mean, I, would, you know, can imagine I was wishing she wouldn't do it. And this is where I learned the other aspect of the joy of generosity is to be the open and connected receiver. She was acting out of real connectedness and love. And when I would say, no, please don't do it, it was like a block to that connectedness, to the, the movement back and forth of, of metta and of generosity. And when I could just open up, and really receive in, uh, not in, a, oh, I'm so glad she's taking care of me, but just in a, a, a feeling, the love and the generosity that was coming from her. And it wasn't for me. Being a, a member of the Sangha, do you, remember, you remember that you're always simply a representative of the Sangha, and what's done for you is done for the Dharma, not for you, know, you as a person so much. Receiving in that way is extremely powerful. You see that it's not about this person being generous to this person, but about the flowing energy of compassion, of non-clinging. It was a wonderful experience of the joy of generosity. And often seeing that the poorest people are the ones who can be the most generous and have the most joy in that generosity. Recently, it was in April, it was at Yucca Valley, we were watching a video called Home to Tibet about a man, a Tibetan refugee, who actually lives in western Massachusetts. He's a a stonemason. He builds stone walls, so you you could see why living here is a good place to live. And in this video, after I don't remember how many years living here, he was going home to Tibet to visit his family, who he hadn't seen for so long. And a, an American couple went with him, You know, like, like snuck into video, this reunion in Tibet and all. So I don't remember the whole thing, but I remember him getting back to the small village where his sister lived and her family, and of course how happy and sad the whole reunion was. But all, also his being somewhat shocked to see the hardships of their life and in the period of time how old his sister had come to look just and you could really see the two of them together in the video how much she had aged you really could feel the sense of the hardships of their life just barely having enough food very severe living conditions and at some point i forget the details but you know he he had a I guess he had brought a lot of gifts, of course, and also some money. And there was a point towards the end where the sister, now having a little bit of money, was so happy. She was radiant with happiness because she now had enough, since she had just enough to eat, she could take this money and finally make offerings to the monasteries and the monks. who who were near her, who she felt as her spiritual support. And it was so clear seeing her, this wasn't a should, you know, I haven't paid my dues and I'm going to go to the hell realms. This was a source of so much joy for her. You could just see it radiate. It was one of the, I don't know, it was so powerful to see this. And to see at that moment... To look at generosity is so clearly a liberation practice. You know, someone in that state, there wasn't any holding to something for me or a sense of separation, but just that joy at being able to share what I have is yours. It was really beautiful. Metta is a kind of generosity, generosity of the heart, you could say. Just that straightforward, well-wishing that wants nothing back. So, generosity can be quite spontaneous, as in some of these examples. And as everything else, we can bring our mindful attention to this area of generosity and really explore consciously how it works and what the effects are. During one of the times I was sitting with Sayadaw Pandita, the monk who was with him, Sayadaw Janaka, gave this wonderful talk on dana and some of the ways we can work with it. So I want to share some of the things he said then about working with generosity. Again, aside from it just being a practice of happiness and a nice thing to do, if we really look deeply in a moment of generosity, true generosity, you see, first it's about intention, of course, not about just how it looks. So as they say, um, not to give with resentment, not to give detesting the gift or those who are receiving it. (laughs) It's possible. (laughs) Okay, take it then, you stupid jerk. I mean, that's not what we're talking about in generosity. I suppose one could give millions of dollars with that way or to look good or to get something back, you know, or for tax purposes, (laughs) I don't know. It's really looking deeply at the intention, at the motivation, that's the heart of the generosity. And when we look, we can see how obviously an action of generosity brings a sense of unity, a sense of connectedness. That's why it's often said, if you're feeling difficulty with someone, try giving them a gift, a real heartfelt gift. Because to do that, There has to be a sense of connection to really give from the space of letting go of something. There's a sense of connection and that helps. That brings us together again. Okay, so working with Donna as a practice of freedom, a moment to moment practice of heart of non-clinging. Starting with the volition that sense of can I give this without wanting anything in return, even recognition, even having the person know it is I who gave this. How interesting it is, just there can be just such a little sense of confirmation we need back. But remember, it's a practice. And as with every wholesome act, it is accompanied by compassion. Compassion is the root cause of every wholesome action. So in a way, both dana and sila basically spring from compassion and as such strengthen our understanding of connectedness. Okay, so these are sort of the steps that Sayadaw and talked about. In deciding to be generous, whether you're giving a thing, whether you're giving of your time, whether you're just giving of energy, a willing ear to listen. It doesn't matter what. Pay attention to the volition. Sort of let the volition purify, because, of course, often we have very mixed uh, intentions when we go to give. So just let it settle and see what our intention is. Purify. As Robert Aitken says, with every generous act, let it be the generous act of the bodhisattvas. And our deepest level, our intention can be, with this act, may all beings be free from suffering. That's like the that one level, and, but any level down to just can I give it. See and abandon the clinging to that thing, whether it's your time, whether it's uh, an object, whatever it is, whether it's service. Can we look at our intention and see and abandon the clinging to it? Sometimes, of course not always, we find that the giving is face-to-face, hand-to-hand. You know, if it's your time or energy and you're doing something with a person face-to-face, or if you're actually handing somebody an object hand-to-hand. This isn't always possible or even advisable, but if that is the case, to do it hand-to-hand, to really be there with full presence and commitment is a very powerful sort of inhabiting the act of generosity. I uh, got a good lesson in this, actually, from Sayadaw Upandita about the powerfulness of the interrelatedness of the generosity in this. I was giving him a book, which I, I think I had had somebody else buy it for me since I was on retreat, and I had inscribed it but had them give it to him. And when I went in for my next interview, he took the book and said, basically, he told me, There's the book, pick it up, and you give it to me, face to face, you know. And it was really lovely because he, it wasn't like he said, Okay, thanks, you know, I'll <laughs> put it down. He was really there, 100% present, with a really open heart, really a meta heart. I could feel it, just really honoring that intention of generosity, and that made me be there, fully present. And I could see the ways that sometimes I might want to, you know, just just give something and not really quite own it, or all those feelings of what if they don't like it, or what will they think of me, or is it good enough? None of that has anything to do with generosity. You know, generosity isn't about the bigger the better. You know, and it's not even about the person has to go, Oh, aren't you incredible? What this is the best book I ever received. It's simply about that intention of connecting, of meta, of letting go. And so to to what he was doing was really teaching me to inhabit fully with mind and body, that act of generosity. And it was very powerful. And so then whether you're face to face or not, to give with the attention fully focused on the act of giving. Of course, again, we're fully inhabiting it, and it strengthens the power of the volition of generosity. It strengthens the compassion. You know, rather than, oh, okay, here, take it, and I'll be on my way. Just be fully present. And then afterwards, continue to pay attention, because often we notice how we do it really full-heartedly, Gee, but maybe I could have used that, you know? Or <laughs> oh, okay, well that was good, but maybe I could have done something else with my time, or just these little regrets that can come in. Just be mindful of that. So we purify the volition beforehand. We purify the volition afterwards. And then, as with all acts, being aware of the broader context—that whatever giving we're doing is not just to satisfy our own need to give, but that is truly useful, that it's in a context where it's helpful. So, for example, if I have a friend who's manic-depressive and she's in a really manic stage and spending all her money, my idea to give her a gift of a lot of money at that time might not be very skillful. It might be much better to wait to when she could use it in a healthy way if i know that it's just putting the generosity in a context of what's really helpful and then i added this last one which which i mentioned before of allowing oneself to receive in a very present wholehearted and open way because you see when we when we receive in this way we are also moving out of our self-cherishing. Because, you know, when people give you a compliment and we want to deflect it, that's really self-cherishing. It really stops the connectedness. Or when in Thailand, when I knew i given, if you just talked about money, I had so much more at home. Even here, I don't have much, but compared to there, I had much more at home than the people giving. But to say, no, no, don't give me anything. I'll go out and buy an omelet you know, really stops the whole flow of compassion and connection. So practice receiving generosity in a really open-hearted and present way. It's a wonderful practice of liberating ourselves from our sense of self-cherishing, from our sense of separateness. If you're really receiving someone's compassion and generosity, I guarantee you're not going to feel separate And that is really the practice of compassion and emptiness. And it's joyful besides. It's a really beautiful way to live. And even years later, for instance now when I'm talking about the time in Thailand, just the memory coming up of the joy and the incredible generosity of the people comes up in me now as such, a happiness, such a joy, it brightens and gladdens the heart in this moment. It's really um, karmic fruit. When we talk about, you know, uh, the karmic results, we tend to often look at, you know, it's so bad, this, and then so this is my result from that, and then we rebel against it. But these moments of happiness are also karmic results of that generosity at that time. And so over all these years, it's been a long time, I can feel just the same strong sense of oneness with these people as I felt then, and the happiness and gladdening of the heart that then leads one into the ability to be more awake, more present, less clinging. So we practice, and sometimes it might seem like a practice of generosity, But it moves from practice into such a natural way of being, one doesn't even think of it as generosity anymore. It's just of course. As Shantideva put it, who wrote the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Even when I have done things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. Just that. You couldn't even call it generosity. It's just like having fed myself. The actualization of our oneness. It's the beginning of our practice and it's also the pinnacle of our understanding. Working with Sila is much the same way. I'm not going to talk as much about Sila. I know Steve talked about it quite a bit the other night. I just want to emphasize these two aspects of the happiness it brings to our hearts and mind, our commitment to ethical conduct, and that just as with Donna, attention to our speech and actions is not only laying a foundation for our awakening, but it is a moment-to-moment practice of freedom and compassion. Really, commitment to conscious conduct is an act of compassion towards ourselves and all beings. It's an actualization in speech and action of our understanding of our oneness with all beings. Even the smallest act of kindness, even the smallest act of non-cruelty, of care, of carefulness with our speech—it doesn't have to be amazing, you know, renunciations. But even the smallest act of care with our action and speech is an expression. Maybe not—we don't get that mentally, in, you know, in words but it's an expression of compassion of our understanding that we are all one. And again, I find that by really investigating with care why we do what we do, why we say what we say, and the effects, again without judgment, but with interest and investigation, what are the effects on ourselves and others of what we say and what we do, all we have to do is pay attention. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, mindfulness is really the only precept. Because if we're really mindful, we take care, we're responsible. And as soon as we're paying attention, we can't help but notice, well, I can't help but notice, that anything that I do that comes from cruelty, that comes from carelessness, that comes from anger, it has such a strong effect on me, sometimes even stronger, maybe as soon as I see. Usually, I have to say for me, it's usually going to be wrong speech. It's out the mouth. It kind of missed the sensor, The words didn't even show up on the screen, and it's out the mouth. Hopefully, you won't discover this happening to you next week. But, so when, when that happens, it's gotten so much that I just have to see the slightest Ripple on somebody's face. And already I feel reverberations that are so painful that it's its not even something, it's not a, an idea. It's so obvious that carelessness that brings suffering to somebody else is immediately the same suffering or even more I'm feeling. There's no way to separate it. So when the Buddha talks about by protecting ourselves, we off, we protect others. We often talk about paying attention to Sila, to the five precepts I'm talking about now, just the five basic lay precepts of not killing, not taking what's not given, not hurting ourselves or others with our sexuality, not lying or stealing or talking maliciously. And not using drugs or intoxicants to cloud the mind, just those five you know it's not really it doesn't seem like a lot to ask, but as Steve said the other night, you know what is it what did he say? Some huge number, right ten trillion or something actual rules that it turns into, but if we don't think of it as rules, if we just think of it as paying attention, it's so obvious that by protecting ourselves from the pain of remorse, from the pain of disharmony, we're protecting all beings. So I know a lot of times when morality is spoken of or thought of, we begin by thinking of it on this level. It's a foundation for practice. The bliss of blamelessness is a phrase that's often used. And I'm, I'm sure you can all relate to the times just sitting here and some unskillful thing we've done in the past, whether it was yesterday or when we were five, whether it was something really seriously awful or it was just some sliding comment we made to a third-grade companion that we know hurt their feelings. (laughs) I've gone through agony over stuff like that, you know, really feeling the pain, the remorse, that comes from unskillful, uncaring conduct. We can all relate to the bliss of blamelessness, the happiness of just not making waves in the world. That is, of course, one level of working with with sila, just the bare basis so we can have a relatively calm mind to then get onto the real stuff, the mental development, the samadhi, the wisdom, The thinking about what do we do when we can't hold on to the samadhi four weeks from now, three months from now, in the middle of New York City, trying to walk down the street, lifting moving placing, what about my nice samadhi? Forget it. But we can pay attention to why we're doing and saying what we're doing and saying, walking down the streets of New York. Do we say, this is my right of way, you move over, buddy, in our mind? Or can we just step aside with a real sense of connection and kindness? Nobody else even knows it's happening. What's the difference in the effect in our heart and mind? The difference between conflict, separation, fear, holding my space, and spaciousness. Connectedness, a heart and mind of non clinging, compassion. I feel very deeply that paying attention to Sila is a very profound path of liberation. And the Buddha spoke of it in this way. There's one sutta. Where it's called effacement, or really sort of like erasing all the kalesas, you could say. (laughs) This is sort of the title of it. It Because all these different ways of radically removing these kalesas, these torments of mind, which is another metaphor for freedom. And he says in this sutta, he says, I say, that even the inclination of mind towards wholesome states is of great benefit. Just the inclining of the mind. So what should be said of bodily and verbal acts conforming to such a state of mind? The power of bodily and verbal wholesome actions is so strong that he then goes through, I'll spare you the list, but it's a list of 44 different ways that lead to, that contribute to this complete eradication of the defilements. And then each of this list of 44, he goes through it in about five different ways. But it's the same list of 44. The first on the list is non-cruelty or compassion. Because compassion, as I said, is the root of all virtuous action. And then on the rest of this list of 44, of the first 15 of these, 13 are dealing with simply wholesome speech and action. Just the basics. Non-cruelty, non-killing, non-lying, non-malicious speech. All the basic precepts, actually. This he's saying, these are ways to eradicate completely these torments, these defilements of mind. He's not saying this is just a nice thing to do so that later you can get enlightened. These are first on the list. So here it's really saying that not only does conscious conduct acting from our sense of oneness bring happiness here and now, It is also a very powerful path of freedom, of touching through our actions that place of pure awareness, of non-clinging, of non-separation. Because in order to act from compassion, from any of the precepts we're acting from compassion, And every action of compassion further strengthens our living experience of our oneness, which again deepens our understanding of emptiness. It's like a whole cycle that keeps going. And another thing that I think we sometimes overlook is the gladdening of the heart in the present moment when we are acting from non-harming. This is very powerful. Again, it's the same as with the generosity, an act of non-harming plants what Thich Nhat Hanh calls seeds of joy that can ripen at any time, that gladden our heart in the present and in the future. This can arise spontaneously but it's also something that we can call on as a skillful means in or out of formal practice to help us become more connected to ourselves, to others, to our experience in this moment. I'll give you an example of the spontaneous arising. Just the other day, um, just out of nowhere, uh, a memory came of years ago, long 20 years ago when I was working in a sheltered workshop in North Carolina with um, severely mentally handicapped adults. it's sort of a sheltered workshop where you know, the, the people would come in the day and do some kind of little task like putting two nuts in a plastic envelope and then someone else would staple it. That was a complicated job actually for those guys. And I was one of the instructors there, you know, we just spend the day with the people, and it was intense. I won't go into the whole story, but it was intense. And just this memory came back of one day, because I really came to love the people in the workshop, you know, the, the people who came every day. And there was one day in particular that came up in my mind where when I walked in, just a lot of the different people, for some reason, were all coming up and hugging me. It was just kind of a happy day where the sense of our togetherness and the kindness that I had been able to, I mean, I wasn't trying to be kind. It just came out of me because I felt connected to the people, but that it was coming back to me, the sense of the connectedness. And it was a really happy day, and I can can see all the different people now. Well, just the memory of that brings up again such a happiness. such It lightens and gladdens the heart. It brings in a brightness, a faith, an energy, and then from that, if there's something difficult going on, it's a little easier to open to it. If there's nothing special going on, it's a little easier to have energy to be with it. This is how um, seeds of joy can really strengthen our awakening, our intention. So that's spontaneous. Something that we might not always think to do, but that is actually taught as a skillful means, is to consciously reflect on our, our kind, our ethical, our non-harming conduct. I know it feels a little uh, egotistical maybe to us. We tend to consciously reflect on all the bad things we've ever done. We do that very well. We can, at the drop of a hat, you know, list off 45 horrific things we've done in the last three days. And we feel like that's good practice, that's being honest. But if we say, sit and really reflect, feel in your heart all the kind, compassionate, non-selfish, non-self-cherishing things you've done, and we feel like, oh, that's so pompous. That would make me so conceited. But it's a very skillful thing to do. Again, not with clinging. It's not with a lot of identification. Aren't I incredible? I've done all these things. But just as I was describing that memory from the workshop, just feel the happiness of an act of oneness, of compassion, because when you're really acting in that way, there's not a lot of me there. It's just doing the obvious, doing what needs to be done, what doesn't harm. And that is a very uh, helpful way to bring some joy into our experience in the present moment. Not to hold on to pleasant experience, but to gladden the heart, awaken the energy, reconnect us with the fact that we are all one, that the root of all Conscious action, all wholesome action, is compassion. And each time we can speak or act from that, we're strengthening our understanding of emptiness. This doesn't take huge concentration. It doesn't take powerful meditative states. It doesn't matter if all of our loved, beloved psychological tendencies and patterns are still with us, Practicing with generosity and with sila is accessible to us in every moment. And when we forget, okay, the next moment it's accessible again. And it's a moment where we have access to the twin wings of emptiness and compassion on very basic everyday activities. I really think it's wonderful the vastness of this path and the depth of this path that the Buddha has given us. And it really is, I think, it's a path of happiness and joy. Not that we don't experience sorrows. In fact, we're more present for all the sorrows of the world, but we're also more present for the joys. And the greatest joy is just that of being so awake and alive, that we're really present in this moment, joyful, sorrowful, whatever it is, we're not afraid to face it. So I just want to end with a poem that expresses to me this quality of joyful presence in life. From E.E. Cummings. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees, and a blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today. And this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and owing's, and of the gay great happening, illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing Any lifted from the know of all nothing, human merely being, doubt unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. So let's just sit and breathe together.